Well, today we're going to jump in and we're going to continue our um, journey through the book of Matthew. It's neat. Last week, Pastor Ron finished Matthew chapter 23, which, you know, I know math and I know numbers. And what comes after 23 is 24. So that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. I know I'm blowing people's minds here this morning. Aaron's like, are you serious? We're, oh, man, I'm not joking. This is real. This is real. It's deep stuff. <laughs> so we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 24, and I want to kind of lay a foundation before we jump into the reading of our text this morning. Um, we're going to see first Jesus leaving uh, the temple, and, and there's a shift in, in some things. So as Jesus is leaving the temple, um, he gets to the Mount of Olives, and he starts having a conversation with his disciples, and um, the disciples are asking Jesus some questions, but Jesus responds to them in a really interesting way. He starts talking about the end in his response to the questions the disciples have, and if you can remember, we're in the last week of Jesus's life on earth where we are in Matthew 24, um, but Jesus is not pointing towards the end of his physical life on the earth. He's not pointing towards the work of the cross, but he actually is talking about like the end of everything, like the end end. And before we kind of go into our teaching this morning, there's a few things that we need to make sure we pay attention to and read this passage with the appropriate lens. This chapter is an interesting one because it is the center of a lot of theological conversations. In intellectual circles, this portion of scripture, both Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, is referred to as something called the Olivet Discourse. So I need everybody to say Olivet Discourse. Congratulations, you're all theologians. So that's all it takes. So if anybody comes up to you with like big fancy words, just look at them and be like, yo, what you know about the Olivet Discourse, bro? Huh? What you know about that? Like I could go all day with this stuff. You know what I mean? So, and I, I, joke and I, I joke and I say that because a lot of times some intellectual things, some theological things can sound intimidating, but really they're not. They're just words that need to be defined and help us understand them. And what this name comes from is simply because Jesus was talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Ergo, Olivet Discourse, right? So this topic is not only found in the book of Matthew. If you can remember, we have two other gospels after Matthew that are called the synoptic gospels. So these three books of the Bible uh, have very similar accounts to the story and life of Jesus. So this same reference point that we're going to be going through in Matthew 24 and 25 over the next few weeks is also found in Mark chapter 13 and then again in Luke chapter 21. So I put that up there because I encourage you guys to read and spend time with the Lord between Sundays. And this is a great reference point if you want to study a little more of what we're going to be sharing this morning. So this moment in scripture comes on the heels of Jesus's time in the temple. And it likely got the disciples thinking about what happens at the end. So we see Jesus responding to them with something called prophetic language. And we're going to read this here in just a moment. Jesus is forecasting what the world is going to be like at the end. And if we're all honest with ourselves, that is a pretty normal thing for us to be kind of fascinated about, right? If you've ever had a job interview, your immediate response when it's over is like, man, I really, I wonder if I got that job. You want to know the answer right away. There are people in this church, I will not name their names, but they read the last chapter of a book before the first chapter of a book. That's crazy to me. But they want to know how it ends to see if it's worth reading the whole thing. It's like, well, you kind of 
there's some spoilers you're going to have in there. You know, you kind of know who makes it and who doesn't when you do that in a book, but that's okay, whatever floats your boat. And there's no greater example of that than if any Chiefs fans are in here. Um, like two years ago, there was a really huge playoff game where the Chiefs played the Buffalo Bills. Do you guys remember that? It was an absolute roller coaster. And this guy named Patrick threw the ball down the field and won in like the last 30 seconds of the game or whatever it was. Where our neighbors were over when we were watching that game. I'm not a Chiefs fan. I'm not a Bills fan. I just like a good football game. And our neighbors are huge Chiefs fans. And I can't tell you how many times they put pillows over their head or blankets over their head going, just wake me up. Tell me when it's over. I don't want to know what happens. About this, that, and the other thing. There's, it's an absolute exact um, uh, reflection of how we feel sometimes that we want to Fast forward, and we want to know how things play out. And even though that's a natural inclination of ours, as we approach this topic today, it can be really easy to miss the reality of what Jesus is talking about. You see, as a believer, I can say that as I read scripture, there are things that I know to be rock solid truth. The first is I believe that Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, and died a horrific death on the cross, and in doing so provided a way for us to have relationship with our Heavenly Father once again, not just while we're here on earth, but also for all of eternity. And after he died and he spent three days in the ground, I believe that Jesus conquered death and rose again. And I also believe in what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, which reads as follows. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This passage is referring to another thing I believe to be true, and it's something called the rapture, a time where Jesus will return and gather his children and call them home. And as you read scripture and seek the Lord and understanding the things to come, you would be studying something called eschatology, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y eschatology. And what that is, is the study of death and judgment and the doctrine of the last things. And studying this topic can be very fascinating. And, and it's mostly stricken by the book of the Bible we have that's dedicated to it. It's the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And the entire book, if you've ever read it, is loaded with symbolism, all pointing towards things yet to come. In the book, we find the mention of dragons and beasts of the seas and seven seals and scorching suns and seas and rivers of blood and seven bowls and much more. And in my life, I have seen many people approach this topic and try to gain an understanding of the things to come in a very literal sense and try to pinpoint through scripture when the Lord will in fact return. And there's no greater example of this than a gentleman by the name of Edgar Wisenant, W-H-I-S-E-N-A-N-T. Edgar published a book in 1988, and it was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. I mean, the branding and marketing writes itself, doesn't it? It's like all right there. I don't know if you know this, my boy Edgar was not correct in his predictions. 
So like a true capitalist that he is, he was like, oh, wait a minute. I forgot one. It's not 1988. It's 1989. And there's 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. These are real books, folks, okay? He published two books back to back. First book sold kind of well. Second book, not so much. He lost a lot of credibility. You know, it just it happens, right? But did Edgar get down? No, he didn't. In 1993, he came back for more. And he wrote another book. And in 1994, he wrote a final book about how the world will end in a nuclear war and all sorts of things and blah, 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 blah. What this guy Edgar did was he looked through all of Scripture, applied his own lens to it, and came up with a calculation that fit a specific criteria to prove when the Lord was coming back. And Edgar is not the only example we have of people trying to do this. There's a lot of fictional books out there that people read and take as reality. They're called the Left Behind series. The great Nicolas Cage is in one of those films. So it's an interesting movie. I watched half of it and could not finish it. So I'm just letting you know it's just interesting. That's all I could say. But the problem with this, and even though the intentions were probably well served to start... The problem with this thinking is that God's word tells us, and Jesus speaks later in Matthew 24, in verse 36, that no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return. So is studying and knowing all of this minutia good? Sure, of course it is. It's, it's a beautiful thing to study the word of God. It's a tremendous exercise to read all of scripture and study it and try to understand But we have to remember what Jesus just finished saying to the Pharisees in the chapter before, which was don't miss the bigger picture. We can get so caught up on all the small things. We can get so distracted by things that we miss what the bigger picture is. And it's that lens, it's that idea that I want to read our scripture this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14. And it starts like this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming And of the end of the age, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are the beginnings of birth pains." Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you knowing, Father, that you are everything. Jesus, we are so grateful that you came to this earth, that you took on the weight of this world and the sins of this world, Father, and you created restoration in in relationship with the King of Kings. 
Father, you love us enough to warn us of the things to come. So Jesus, I pray that as we spend time together as a family this morning, you meet us here. You reveal in our hearts the way that you want us to grow, and we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we commit this time to you and all God's people said, amen, amen. So let's start unpacking this passage, if that's okay with you guys. Um, And to do that, I want to break this up into kind of four bite-sized pieces. I've always heard the joke, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So when we're talking about eschatology and the things to come, it's easy to start one bite at a time. So the first thing that we see in this chapter as it opens is Jesus is leaving the temple and his disciples draw attention first to the buildings that are on the temple mount. Okay, we see this in verse two. Um, I think we've got it uh, up on the screen. It says, and Jesus then tells the disciples that not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Okay, now I believe that there are two important points that surround this passage of scripture. One, I believe, has already happened and taken place from a historical standpoint, and the other is a foreshadowing of things to come, okay? So let's, uh, let's do a little history lesson here. How many people like history? You guys like history? Oh, look at this. The right side loves it. You kids should love history. It's one of your classes. You have to pass it to get through high school. So this is it. We got to be, now you know how to pray for everybody, okay? You know how to pray for the youth. Lord, give them a love for history. So, all right, let's take a little journey here. In AD 66... Okay? The Jewish people of Judea rebelled against Rome. I know I've said this a few times. If you've watched The Chosen, if you've watched any, any episode of The Chosen, doesn't matter if you watch all of it or one episode, they do a really great job of explaining Rome's presence in Israel at that time and surrounding the Jewish people. Okay? They're everywhere. Okay? And the Jewish people of Judea, they say, we're going to rebel against Rome. And anybody who studied history knows for a really long period of time, Rome was nothing to mess with. They were a serious military powerhouse. So Rome responds with a systematic attack on Jerusalem. And within two years, by AD 68, they turn their attention almost exclusively on the subjugation of Jerusalem. And two years after that, in AD 70, Romans breached the outer walls of Jerusalem, ransacked the entire city, and burned the temple to the ground. Now, as they burn the temple, typically when a building is on fire, What is in it also burns. Does that make sense, right? So what's in the temple was gold that was in this temple. And as gold raises its temperature, it melts. And as that gold melted, it fell into the cracks of the stones that were underneath it. And as one commentator suggested that over time, people would search that location for gold and in doing so toppled every single stone from its place. So is this, is that moment in AD 70 a literal fulfillment of scripture? Well, many archaeologists, commentators, and historians would would agree to it. I'm not saying unequivocally, that's it, guys, this is it. But this literal destruction of Jerusalem was a foreshadowing of things that were to come. So again, if we stop at that point and go, okay, it's done, we could just move on. Well, no, we're missing a big point here. Because Jesus doesn't end his communication with his disciples there. He goes on in verses 4 and 5 by saying, um, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Now remember, don't miss the point. Don't miss the big picture. Jesus is first telling his disciples here to not be deceived. 
And that's a really big deal. The business of deception has been around since the beginning of time. And it's just as important today to guard and warn against deception as it's ever been. If Jesus is warning us of this, then we need to pay attention to it. Deception, simply put, is when you cause someone to believe something that is not true. And as I mentioned, this device has been used by the devil since the beginning of time. It worked on Adam and Eve. It worked throughout the Old Testament. It worked throughout the New Testament, and it still works today. I have heard this language over these last couple of weeks of people that are proclaiming to be Satanists. And they're Satanists not because they want to cause evil, but because Satan is this loving entity, and they love us and accept us. I'm like, you idiot. Satan hates you. Like, what level of deception do you have to be where the one who hates you more than anyone else in this world has convinced you that he loves you? That's a dark and twisted place, okay? The devil offers one thing. He offers a counterfeit. He offers counterfeit love and acceptance through affairs or pornography. He offers a counterfeit ecstasy through drugs. He offers a counterfeit security through wealth. And he offers a counterfeit acceptance through titles and positions. And if he can deceive people through those means, he absolutely can mislead and deceive many others through a false gospel. You've heard Pastor Ron and I talk about this Jesus plus gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is not if you give, then you get. No, it's not. The gospel of Jesus is that we can't do anything to redeem ourselves from sin with, ex with the exception of coming to the cross, accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and letting him be Lord of our lives. That is the message of the cross. And we have to guard ourselves because there is a lot of deceptive messages out there. A lot of them. And we might ask, well, okay, Michael, how in the world would we go about knowing what's right or wrong? Or how would I know about, like, what do I have to do to guard my heart against deception? Well, if we're going to guard our heart against deception, then we first must know the presence of God. And there was a song a few years ago, actually, I guess it's more than a few years ago now, but Kim Walker uh, sung that song, How He Loves Us, right? You guys have all heard that song. There's a lot of controversy because she said heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, and people don't like that language, you know, but anyway, there's a live version of that song where she prays, and when she prays in it, she says, if you were in the presence of God, you would know. And church, I can stand in front of you this morning, and I was reminded of a time when my wife was working at Evangel, and I was on my knees in our apartment praying, and I could physically feel the presence of God standing next to me. And it was so real that I got up and I said, where are you, Lord? You see, if we go after the Lord, he's going to meet us. If we want to spend time with him, you just have to go after him. You have to be in love with him. And when you experience that presence, you don't have to know what the counterfeit is. You'll just know it's wrong because you've been with the king of the universe. And in order to experience the presence of God, we have to accept him into our lives. And after we accept him into our lives, church, if we want to guard our hearts against deception, we have to fall in love with his word. We have to. There are so many people that are intimidated by reading scripture. Open it and just read it. And go, Lord, I need to know what you're saying to me in these things. Guys, I was joking with Ryan. Ryan was running sound this morning. I, I didn't have to take math when I went to college, when I went to Evangel, because I got like a 31 or a 32 in math on my ACT. But you know what I did have to do? Had to take remedial English. 
That's right. I have the weirdest score. They're like, wow, you're great at math. You're terrible at English. Okay? So my comprehension skills were low, all those things. And if I can study the word and understand it, trust me, all of us can. It takes a commitment to opening it and studying it. And when we open it and when we study it, we get to Psalms 119.11. And it says, I have hidden my word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's how we know what deception is because we know we have a filter that we can put it through because we're looking at scripture. And as we accept Jesus in our life and as we go study his word, then we approach the throne room of heaven by getting on our knees and praying and speaking with the Lord. And something so beautiful happens when we pray. God creates in us a discerning heart. And discernment is such a beautiful spiritual gift. It's like a filter. It lets you know this is right and this is wrong, right? In the Italian culture, you guys all have strainers in your house. We have something called a bas. That's what we call it. That's what we drain our pasta through. It's just a strainer. You know why? Because I don't need the water when I'm eating my pasta. I just need the pasta. And the strainer, And when we spend time in prayer, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He gets rid of the stuff that we don't need. Are you hearing me, church? And as we're going after the Lord, it should lead us to one inevitable conclusion. Okay, and what I'm going to say, some people might stop listening or maybe what you've heard about what I'm about to say um, might be right or wrong or indifferent, whatever. But we need to seek the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It is a mandate. It is, it is encouraged in Scripture. Acts 1.8 says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so many times, denominations and faiths, we build these doctrinal statements around, well, did you speak in tongues or not? Bro, stop. Go after the Holy Spirit. If you start speaking in tongues, praise the Lord. If you don't, praise the Lord. Go after the Holy Spirit. That's who's there. We need to have him in our lives. And when we have him in our lives, we start growing deep, deep roots. When I was praying about this, I was thinking about this. When you, when you get those deep roots that go deep and wide, when storms come, guess what tree doesn't fall down? The one that's got deep roots. And when we have deep roots, we tap into spiritual authority. And when we have that spiritual authority, we can walk with the king knowing that he's going to speak to us. Are you hearing me, church? Are we understanding what's at stake here? We have this opportunity to commune with the one who spoke words and created stars. That's who we get to spend time with. Man, I'm excited about that. When we have these things in our lives, we can stand against the enemy, and we won't be fooled so easily. But that's not the only thing that Jesus is communicating with his disciples here. He continues in verse 6, and he says, you will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginnings of birth pains. You see, verse 6 has this really, really important piece of the puzzle, and I've got it highlighted in that passage. He says, see to it that you're not alarmed. You see, Christians and believers can get consumed and alarmed with following signs of the end times. The war in Ukraine starts and people go, that's it, he's coming. That's it, that's it. Hillary Clinton's running for president. That's it, he's coming. That's it, this is the end. You know, whatever, right? You laugh because you know this is true, right? I've heard it, you've heard it, okay? We could start following signs. We could be consumed 
with following signs of the times. And like the disciples, we're always wanting to know, well, when is this going to happen? And what will the exact sign be of Jesus's return? So when Jesus talks about earthquakes and wars and famine, we can look at every war and earthquake and famine. We can look at every false prophet, and there's plenty of them, as a flashing light to indicate the end is near. But the most important lesson that Jesus is giving us in this passage isn't to chase or interpret signs. It's to stand firm to the end and to preach the gospel to all the world. Thank God people reached out to every single person that's in this house this morning, that someone was willing to share the gospel of Jesus with each of you. We can't become apathetic and go, we're good, we got enough, got enough. We don't have more seats, so we can't have more people, right? That We can't get to that point. We have to stand firm to the end. The signs will be happening while God's kingdom is expanding, people. You think the enemy is excited about the Lord taking ground? You think when the Lord is moving and, and, and shaking and radically changing lives, the devil's like, good one. I'll, I'll just wait. I'll wait. I'll just, okay. It's your turn now. I'll just wait like 10 years and I'll, I'll show back up. No, that's not how that is. Our job as a believer is to stand firm in our faith and bear witness to Christ. We need to spend our days loving and serving others rather than fixating on the end. Church, I know the Lord is coming back, and every single minute of every day that passes, we are one day closer to the inevitable return of Jesus. I do not want to spend my time trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back when I know it's a fool's errand. Instead, when we see rumors of war, we see earthquakes or famines, it should serve to us as a reminder that there is a God who will be returning to bring judgment on this earth, And that thought should motivate us to get out of our comfort zone and start sharing the gospel with the people who don't know the good news. People need to hear about Jesus. If there was a freight train coming down the the tracks, you'd go, hey, I feel like you should move because you're going to get destroyed. Okay? And I'm not saying we need to stand around with turn or burn signs. You guys know how I feel about that. Right? But we need to be prayerfully considering and, and modeling, really, what one of our elders, Bill, does here at the church. He prays all the time, Lord, send people in my direction who need to hear about you. Go to dinner with him and watch what happens. As soon as the waitress or waiter comes in, they're like, hi, welcome to Cheddar's. Listen, I've had a rough week. Can I talk to you? I just need to pour out my spirit to you. And we're like, we just, we just want some chicken fingers. That's why we're here for the chicken fingers. We're here for the chicken fingers. And they're like, that's great. Hold on. Listen, I got to pour my spirit. And then like he starts praying for them and sharing the gospel with them. It's unbelievable. But what you're seeing is an outpouring and a physical manifestation of what's happening inside in the spiritual That's all that you're seeing, right? So when we look at the world around us, why would we be shocked when crazy legislation gets passed? That's just an outward example of what the inward heart is. If you've ever read Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he talked about how all believers got upset when prayer was taken out of school. And he said, you could be upset about that, but that prayer leaving school was a physical outward representation of the state of the church. That prayer wasn't happening in the church. Jesus refers to his house one way in scripture, and it will be known as a house of prayer. That's how he refers to his house. So if we're not praying as believers, what do you expect to get done? Right? Think about what if hearts got changed? How would that trickle down into every other aspect of the world that we know it today? 
If hearts got softened and ran after the cross, what would really happen? What would really happen if we treated our neighbors the way we would want to be treated? What would happen if we really loved people so much that we cared for them? That when they were crying, we didn't offer a solution. We just offered a shoulder to cry on. And what if we actually walked through difficult circumstances with people? Think of the message and gospel of Jesus that would be shared. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. Jesus says, in the end, the love of most will grow cold. Church, we have lived every single thing that Jesus talks about in this passage. We've lived through all of it. And that needs to motivate us to know that there is a day and a time where Jesus will return. And I want to look around on the other side and go, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you made it too. Because the reality is there's going to be folks up there that you can be like, you, you made it? You, you made it? Yeah, that's great that they made it. We want them to make it, right? Hey, Amen. Every one of you thought of somebody when I said that. You know it. And if you're thinking that way, you need to be praying for that person, okay? That's what you need to be doing. Oh, I know Johnny needs that, you know, or whatever. So, yeah, go talk to Johnny then and go pray for him. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right. Sorry, I'm getting a little worked up here. All right. Lastly, we see one more point that Jesus talks about here. He says it in verse 9. It says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Here's a cold, hard fact, guys. Persecution is part of the plan. When we follow Jesus, we're going to be hated by people. And I understand that maybe we don't experience persecution the way some nations do, right? There's people who, if they had one page of the Bible, they'd be put in jail for a really long time. There's a book I was blown away by that I read years ago. I don't agree with everything in the book, but it rocked my world. It's called Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. And this is a guy who wrote a book about spiritual authority and submitting to authority while he was in a Chinese prison for his faith. And there's something when I read that I was floored of like, I cannot believe the words that this man is writing and how, how emboldened he is by the presence of God and knowing that God is still in control despite the circumstances. You see, as I started to write out this point, I had to stop because the word of God is loaded, loaded with passages that are encouragements to us when it comes to being persecuted. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, there's not a person in here that would be willing to admit that we enjoy being weak. There's not a person in here that would admit that we enjoy being broken, but man, there it puts us in a place where we can finally understand what Jesus has gone through on a very small scale. You see, we serve a God who's been through everything. He gets it. He gets it. There's not a thing that you're going through that he doesn't understand. He's not empathetic, sympathetic to. He's been through it all. So when we were persecuted, we get to join in that suffering with Jesus. 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Why do we care and look for the praise of people who are not the God of the universe? Why do we look or ascribe to things to say, I want my life to be a certain way. I want to have a certain bank account. I want to have this. I want my house to look a certain way. I want this many kids. I want this kind of car. Why are those our goals? Who made that up? 
That's the antithesis of what God is telling us. Like, guys, it's going to be hard. But there's joy in that because we have these promises where that's where the Lord is going to meet us. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Guys, that's the promise. That's the promise. And Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through who? The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Church, persecution is part of the plan. And when you stand firm and you grow deep roots, we get to live Revelation 3, 11 as our hope. And it says, I'm coming soon. Amen, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. As the worship team comes up this morning, I want to share a thought my dear friend Eric shared with me as we were talking and praying through this passage for the last few weeks. He said, the world is getting darker as we head toward the light of Jesus' return. Wars and rumors of wars and increasing wickedness all around us can be discouraging, but we have a reason to hope and hold fast. Instead of being anxious and fearful by all the things happening in the world that feel out of control, we can put our trust in the one who holds our days in his hands. And in these dark times, we can ask God to help us stand firm and use us as his light to shine into the lives of others rather than getting worried or dismayed or overwhelmed by what's happening. We can be overcomers in Christ and reach the lost while there is still time. The best is truly yet to come when it's Christ who we keep our eyes focused on. Church, everything we see, it's all going to be gone at some point. These aren't fear tactics. These are just stone-cold realities. And when the Lord returns, it will be in the blink of an eye. And this isn't going to be like an old-school 1990s time where it's like, are you ready? No. But also, yeah, are you ready for the Lord's return? Are we at a place where we're seeking the Lord diligently or are we more concerned, as I mentioned before, about title, position, and career? I'm reminded this entire time that I was studying this week and planning and preparing when I went to the Teen Challenge Banquet in November. Daryl Strawberry spoke, and this is a guy who's got multiple World Series championships and rings and batting titles and home run championships and all sorts of stuff. And he said, and I quote, I've been to the top. There ain't nothing there. That's a guy who did it. He made it in the world's eyes. And then he critiqued Tom Brady and said, look at him. Everybody likes him. Look what he lost. His family's destroyed. For what? Your name in a record book? Like he can go bring that before the King of Kings and be like, hey, I'm good. Look at these records. Am I making sense, church? There are things that we've got to give over to the Lord and say, okay, I want you to use me. And young people, you're at an unbelievable time in your life where you get to seek the Lord in those things. And you have a church and brothers and sisters and parents that are praying for you guys and seeking the Lord in his direction for your lives. Time is ticking. And the older I get, I'm going to be 40 in like two weeks here. And as time continues, I feel like every day just goes faster 
and faster and faster. I want to live out my days sharing the good news of Jesus to people, seeing lives radically transformed, and when we get to the other side, we can have a block in heaven that says Emmaus Avenue. Wouldn't you guys love that? So guys, as we close, let's look at two questions, and then we're going to have a time of reflection and prayer. But the first is, are you ready for the Lord's return? Do you know him? Do you know him? If you've been coming to this church for a minute and you keep hearing this message, but you have not said, you know what, I need Jesus in my life. Man, what are you waiting for? Just do it. It's the best thing you'll ever do. It's the most life-transforming thing that will ever happen. I'm so glad. You know, Janice, who's my wife's grandmother, said when her husband passed away in the eulogy that she gave that Daryl's one regret in life was not knowing Jesus sooner. There's no time like now if you don't know Jesus. There's no time like now. And for those that do know Jesus, do you long for the coming of Christ or are you holding on to the things of this world? There is nothing more important than our walk with Jesus. We don't serve Jesus to get something out of it. We serve it because we get to spend time with him. And that's a beautiful thing. So, Father, as we close today, Lord, if you're stirring hearts, I pray that we'd have the courage to respond to that stirring. And, church, we'll have people in the back that are willing to pray with you if you need prayer. But, Jesus, we come before you humbly knowing that we need you. Lord, that you are coming back, Father, and there will be a day that there will be those that don't know you, God. So, Lord, teach us how to stand in the gap for them. Teach us how to pray for them. Teach us to stand up for the things that are of you, Lord, in the right way. God, build in our hearts and our minds a a spirit man or a spirit woman so strong that we won't be deceived. God, teach us to focus on you and teach us how to study. And Holy Spirit, we pray that as we seek you, you would fill us in equal measure. Jesus, meet us here this morning. Challenge our hearts, challenge our minds, and may our roots grow deep, deep, deep with you. In your precious name we pray, amen.